I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I have been a diet soda fiend since I came out of the womb. But I decided earlier this year that I was going to go cold turkey for 2023 and focus on things that are nutritionally beneficial. I'm going to be honest, it's been rough. I miss flavor. Enter Olipop, a soda alternative available in a range of flavors, including vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, classic grape, strawberry vanilla, cream soda, and cherry cola. They also have a Dr. Pepper dupe called Dr. Goodwin and a brand new Sprite dupe lemon lime flavor. I swear it's not recency bias. The lemon lime is my favorite, but I also really love the cream soda and I also do love the root beer. But it's not just the taste for me. Two out of three Americans say they suffer from digestive issues and 95% of Americans don't get the daily recommended amount of fiber. Olipop is tackling both of these issues with a drink that tastes just like soda, but packs a ton of nutrients into every can. Its functional ingredients combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. They're high fiber and extremely low sugar, plus all of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly with less than 8 grams of net carbs per can. I've worked out a special deal for Shut Up Evan listeners. Receive 25% off your order. Go to drinkolipop.com slash ERK25 or use code ERK25 at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash ERK25. Like the number 25, not spelled out 25. Also, I'd recommend getting their sampler pack because it allows you to try all the various flavors and find out which one is best for you. Which one, which two, which three. Maybe you'll like them all. Olipop can also be found in over 20,000 stores across the country, including Walmart, Target, Kroger, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. So what are you waiting for? Get sipping. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just? Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined once again by my luminous co-host, Sean Ross. Sean, hi, how are you? I am doing great. How are you? I've been a little, like, slow lately. I just came from the barber, and we did more small talk than usual, which, by the way, I am a proponent of small talk sometimes. Um, Like, I like small talk with my barber. And, like, just saying certain sentences, like, 
I noticed that like I had a hard time speaking and then I was like, wait, this feels like deja vu. And I was like, yeah, because that happened quite a few times this week. I've just been like having trouble like socially this week. Even throughout New York Fashion Week, I would bump into friends and like I'm usually one of those people that can handle, you know, a run in very, you know, swiftly, suavely. Um, and I was clunky this week. I think a lot is made of January and Blue Monday right in January. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we talk enough about like the February, March slump. I think it's a really hard time of year to like get motivated to do anything. Right, right. No. And it's because in January, you sort of feel like we're all sort of recharging our battery and figuring out how to navigate. And then come February, the expectation is like, well, you're good now, aren't you? And it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm not good. It's worse than ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, somebody please help. Um, but one thing that is better than ever, if you will, is uh, a new documentary film and memoir that were released in tandem that are not, you know, a package deal, but very much feel like that. And that is the documentary, Pamela, A Love Story, and the memoir, Love, Pamela, uh, both of whom are centered around, in one instance, written by the great Pamela Anderson. Before I get your thoughts on the documentary, which I want to focus a little bit more on, um, because I think more people have seen it, uh, what was your vantage point to Pamela before diving into this current iteration of Pamela? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I feel like a lot of people have a lot of affinity for Pamela Anderson, especially looking back, there's like a certain nostalgia. She was such a cultural icon of the 90s and early 2000s, especially for kids who were growing up in that time because we knew who she was and she was like a little bit edgy because she was this Playboy model, but then also had this very, I don't know, I always felt like Baywatch was a very family-friendly show in a way, and so she kind of had had one foot in each uh, in each area and she sort of straddled that line between controversy but also accessibility and especially being on home improvement like that was a way that a lot of kids got exposed to her that's how I was mostly exposed to her as a kid and so I always had this thing where I looked up to her as like an interesting figure but I don't think I ever quite understood the breadth of what she was bringing because I wasn't fully dipping into the Playboy stuff even the Tommy stuff it's like that's probably some of my earliest memories of like tabloid fodder and I wasn't diving deep into it. I don't think I was the audience for that. I wasn't the right age. I was a little bit too young, I think. But there was always this sort of like, I don't know, she was an enigmatic figure and there was like an interest there. And then she sort of, I mean, for me, disappeared a little bit and then reemerged as this activist. And then her relationship with Julian Assange really brought her back into the news. I was, I was curious coming into this to be like, okay, what is the full story here? What are the gaps that I'm missing? What did I miss as a kid that was going on in the 90s? But I think you bring up something really interesting, which is that this documentary for many people is reframing their understanding of Pamela. But I think for like gay boys like us and tell me if I'm not speaking for you, I always sort of really liked and respected Pamela. I put her in this category of like 
Kimberly Jo Johnson, who played the Pink Ranger, mm. and I think about like Trish Stratus from the WWF, mm. who I really loved growing up, and then like obviously no surprise Buffy. But I think a lot of people have this perception that Pamela is owed a redemption. And in many ways, she is by some. I think for me, I'm like, I've always really loved Pamela. I just didn't love her on the level that I love her now because I now understand her to be a lot more complex of a figure than I ever knew her to be. She is different than the person I thought she was, but not like in a, I had bad feelings and now I have good feelings, more in like a, I had good feelings, now I have great feelings. I would say that I wasn't surprised by anything that I learned from the documentary or the book. Right. But it filled out what I wanted to know about her and it didn't necessarily change my opinion about her. Right, right. For a lot of people going into it, you sort of, it's expected that there's going to be some sort of redemption arc to this. And I think this just fits in to a narrative that we've seen over the last few years. I think about that, like, framing Britney Spears documentary that uh, the New York Times did with Hulu. I think about American Crime Story Impeachment, which sort of sought to redeem people's understanding of uh, Monica Lewinsky. It's just this looking at these people with a little bit more empathy. Can I add one to that list? Because I think there's one that has come out that really got overlooked. And it frustrates me to no end because I really have been wanting justice for Sinead O'Connor for so many years. And she had a memoir that came out a few years ago called, a couple years ago, called Rememberings. And then there was a documentary called Nothing Compares. And it's like in a very similar way, it's sort of not reframing, but it's revisiting the story with 2022, 2021, 2023 eyes. And it happened, but nobody watched it. Go watch that. But with regards to this Pamela documentary, there's this moment, I think it happens a few minutes in, where Pamela says, she's, you know, the, we're, we're going back to her, the very beginning, and like one of the first facts you learn about her is that like from the moment she was born, she was in the paper. It was news, it was in the paper, so you kind of get this sense that like there's this destiny component to Pamela's fame. And then a few minutes later, she says, my mom has a scar across her forehead because her head went through the windshield when she was pregnant with me. And we like to joke that that's probably the reason that I'm a little bit crazy. And then she does what I now know to be like this signature Pamela laugh. And we like to joke that's probably the reason I'm a little bit crazy. <laughs> Where she says something that completely upends your understanding of her or just, it, it's just, she says something totally jolting, whether it be the molestation from her babysitter or her rape, which by the way, the documentary speaks about uh, one instance in which she was raped, but then you read the book and you find out that she was also gang raped by one of her boyfriends, or you have all of this in, in stuff she dealt with with Tommy Lee, which we know about, or even other domestic violence that she dealt with as recently as 2019. All of these things, it's like a windfall. And as she presents them, she just lets this little laugh out afterwards. And I think what it, serves to do from the audience perspective is allow us to understand that her intention, and I think it's a subconscious intention, is to not be presented as a victim. And, you know, she says something, and I think this is, it's it's in the trailer, but I think people have really latched onto this quote, where she says, I'm not a victim. I put myself in crazy situations and survive them. That's true, right? This is her truth. Um, she was also put in a lot of situations where she shouldn't have had to survive. And I think that's the part of the documentary that creates this interesting tension is that I believe 
everything that she says, and I believe the conviction with which she says it. But there were also many instances, and I was where I I I almost felt like her understanding of her own truth. Um, when presented in the form of a documentary, which is different than a memoir, right? Because it's someone else sort of at the helm. In the documentary instance, it's director Ryan White. I just saw a few cracks in the way she was presenting things versus how I perceived them from what I was being given. Like it comes off very much as this is my experience as I remember it. And here's how I felt. But she's not necessarily like fact finding or, you know, giving context to some of these things that happened in her life, both the good and the bad. Like there's not a lot of context to what Playboy was, what that meant, what the sort of stigma or not st- or, or opportunities were that came along with being in Playboy. Um, I mean, she does t- touch on the stigma a little bit, but not not in a way of like, dear reader, this is the context in which I was working. Um, It's very much like a a first person point of view. Here's how I felt at the time. I feel like part of the thesis of this film is that sort of exploring that idea that two or even multiple things can be true at once, which is to say that like something deeply traumatic can happen. And you can also be grateful for what it ended up bringing about as a result. It's not that you're grateful for the trauma, but you understand that because your life went in a different direction, within that newly forged direction might lie other opportunities and goodness that would not have been presented without it. And I think that's a really complicated idea and one that's not explored a lot. And I think that there were times when I felt like this is why I think I enjoyed the documentary a little bit more than the book because I liked the idea, not to say I didn't love the book, and I think Pamela is a terrific writer, but I think what the documentary was able to do really softly was present some realities about Pamela that she's not fully aware of because one of the joys of Pamela, and and, and the director Ryan Wright, he, he speaks about this, is like, her lack of desire to analyze herself, which I think is such a rarity and what makes her such a great documentary subject, but it's all the funnier than that she's releasing a memoir, which is a medium which like forces you (laughs) to reconcile and relive so many moments from your past. And I don't know if the documentary really informed the, the memoir in any way, but I definitely think the memoir informed the documentary. I actually feel differently. Mm. And maybe it's because, so you watched the documentary first and then you read the book, right? Right. I read the book and then I watched the documentary. And so like, maybe it's a different way of taking these things in. But for me, I read the book and I had, like, I really, really loved it. I thought it was a really well-written book, interesting to get her perspective on things. And then you watch the documentary and I was almost disappointed that there was so Mm. many important key elements from the book that weren't included. And so I saw the documentary more as a visual aid. So especially during those Tommy years where we got actual footage of what was going on with the paparazzi, those things that were described in the book that are hard to actually grasp. Okay, what was actually happening in this moment? Um, I think about that scene uh, with the pepper spray or whatever it was that that um, the paparazzi uh, used on Pam and Tommy. Uh, that's described in the book, but it like really, you don't get the sense of what's going on until you see it in the documentary. And so I saw it more so as like an, a, a companion piece to the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was left wanting a little bit more from that was in the book, in the documentary. 
Although I do think that this two-hour documentary is able to pack so much in, you do get the sense that there was room for this being like a, a mini series of some yeah. kind, just because there are so many machinations, not just with her going back and retelling certain instances in her past, but then also the documentary in some senses sort of shoehorns in this, you know, 11th hour moment where she gets the the work uh, doing Chicago on Broadway mm-hmm. and it ends up creating this great sort of like uh, bookend to the documentary. Um, but that's something that again, could have been like an entire episode all of its own because it's able to, because of that triumphant moment for her, the documentary is able to end on a really positive note, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that there's like this melancholy that exists. Something that she says towards the end is that like her, and I think this is sort of Pamela, which is that like she says she doesn't know where she's going from here. Despite the fact that it's clear that like, this documentary and memoir and the work of excavating her past has unlocked something in her, a desire to to keep living. Despite that, there's also the reality that even when you make the the choice to keep living and to lean in, that's a great, that's a great, but then what happens the next day? Like, what do you do to actually begin that work? And that part remains very unclear, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's slightly, again, melancholic because it's like there isn't a next chapter that's clear for Pamela. What's clear is her desire to write the next chapter, and I don't think that was there at the outset of these dual experiences. Hmm. But I do feel like there's this desire, and I think this is just human nature, to watch a story like this, one that is so rooted in trauma, and to say, well, like, yes, like, Pamela wins in the end. She succeeds. And the Chicago storyline does give you that. She makes this triumphant Broadway debut. But I also think peppered in with that is is some sadness. Did you see that performance on Broadway? I sadly didn't. I was really banking on you. What a regret, but then... But I'm also kind of like, why don't we bring her back? Like, if this was such a well-regarded performance, the show's not going anywhere, now's the time. Usually you would get a project like this in conjunction with something else that's being promoted. I appreciate that this is sort of like, truly, the the rest is left unwritten. Um, And... Uh, that gives us the opportunity to, I, f- I do feel like we're sort of like in this together to see like, okay, now we we want Pamela for White Lotus season three. Like the, the world is behind this and or give Pamela her prestige role that she deserves. Like let's take that footage of being asked, well, you're not a serious actress and like let's turn that on its head. Like let's prove that that's wrong. It does feel like we're in it together, but it is a little bit frustrating to know like, that might not happen. The other thing, you know, you brought up uh, the differences between the film and the book. And obviously, like, you're able to just cover a lot more ground in a book because of the nature of the medium itself. But one instance that from the book that's not featured in the documentary that got a ton of traction was a story that she shares about her time on home improvement, uh, which, by the way, the documentary, like, we don't get home improvement at all. Uh, we don't get VIP, which was, like, one of my favorite shows. Uh, we don't get Stacked, her short-lived uh comedy series. I think it was on Fox with Marissa Jarrett Winokur. I can understand why they skipped over that one. But this instance with Tim Allen, and this has gotten a ton of press after the fact, is it was like one of her first days on set and apparently Tim Allen came over, whether I think it was outside of her dressing room, and he was in a robe and he opened up the robe and exposed himself. He was naked and he said to her, there, 
there. Now we've both seen each other or we've both seen each other naked or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that got a ton of pickup. And then Tim Allen responded to it, denying that it happened. Then Pamela was on a talk show and she was asked about it. And she basically was like, why would I make this up? And also like, this is such a specific memory. The reason why I think that's so interesting is because a lot of people read that and are like, this fucking creep Tim Allen. I mean, I'm among those people. But I also get the sense that Pamela didn't bring it up in a way that was to that that wasn't her thought when she put it in the book. I think for Pamela, it was just like, this is something that happened. This was a regular day in my life. This was not an outstanding instance of some man being a creep. In fact, you get the sense that on like the barometer of creepy things that happened to Pamela, that would be pretty low. And so I think it's interesting watching her contend with the 2023 media landscape where I don't think she ever thought in her mind that someone like Tim Allen would be like publicly responding to this and that and then that she would be in an interview where she would be forced to like double down on the fact that it happened despite the fact that she knows that it did. Um, her perception of her life versus where we are at culturally are just seem to be in such um, friction with one another that I find her to be even more exciting because Pamela would say, life is hard. Life is hard. Not my life is hard. Life is hard. And you, life is for, you know, you just got to keep living. That's what you have to do. And it's not said in any kind of way. It's not like this happened to me. It's this happened to me. <laughs> and it continues on. And and then you see much later as she's talking about her activism and uh, interacting with world leaders and talking about this moment with the Australian president that she wanted to have a meeting with him to talk about animal rights. And he said, as long as I can bring some of my buddies along. And again, it's presented as, okay, like that is my life. And if that's what gets me in the door, okay, it is what it is. And it's really interesting because she could have written a very different book from a sort of Me Too uh, uh, vantage point, and and she didn't. And I think that that says something. Without a doubt. Um, There are two other things I want to zoom in with with regard to the documentary. One is Tommy Lee. Um, Obviously, I think a lot of people went into this documentary knowing a little bit about Tommy Lee. Obviously, he has his wild child reputation. And then, of course, the sex tape. I did not know about the domestic violence. Uh, is that something that you knew about? When I read it, I did think, yeah, that sounds right. But it's right. not that I was diving into those articles as a kid. I just found the presentation of their relationship so fascinating. Um, for people that haven't seen the documentary, basically... She meets him at a club that she owns, which, by the way, again, one of those things where it's like you're watching this documentary and it's not that she's out at a club. Of course, because it's Pamela Anderson, she's out at a club that she's a co-owner of. Like, there's just stuff like that. And again, it's not like I wanted more necessarily, but it's just like everything about this woman has an element of intrigue. They meet at this club. Tommy is smitten with her. She's not so sure about him. She's going to the Bahamas for a Playboy shoot. And Tommy gets on a plane, sends her, I think he calls her because there's no text messages at this point, tells her, I'm coming. Pamela says, no, do not come. He comes regardless. She even goes so far as to tell her hotel that if this man shows up, do not let him in. And then somehow, some way, he shows up. She agrees to have a night out together. A few days later, they're married, which 
is is incredibly Pamela once you get to know her through this documentary. But I couldn't help this whole time just being like, I don't know how to feel about Tommy Lee because he does a lot of bad things. It starts with the stalking. Um, and then, of course, there's the domestic violence. And then there's even, you know, conspiracies out there that Tommy Lee had something to do with this tape being stolen. That's a plot point that is not explored in this mm-hmm. documentary. But for instance, Pamela says something like, we don't know who stole these tapes. And it's like, no, we do. The person who stole them has come forward. And there are questions about, you know, the tapes were found behind a carpeted wall. Um, and I think it was like a garage yeah. or, or something. And it's like, yeah, were they tipped off in any sense? And then also even late in life, he he calls her at one point um, when the Hulu uh, series Pam and Tommy is coming out. We don't see this in the film. Pamela recounts this. But she says that what Tommy said to her was, don't allow this to hurt you like it did the first time, which it's not bad advice, but it's could be perceived as pretty callous. Like it's not a very loving thing to say to someone on one another. It's basically sort of like get in the boat. I'll push you out to sea. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet I watched this documentary and I'm like, well, she still clearly loves him. I mean, she's quite explicit about that. And I love her, and I'm kind of just like, well, are they meant to be together? Are they soulmates? It seems like a shitty reality, but he also has like a sweetness about him. And there's, you know, even watching some of those archival videos, like he's so damn lovable. You you can understand why she fell in love with him. And I kept going back to this thing that she said in the book that when she moved from uh, the island to the mainland, when she moved to Vancouver and she went to live with her aunt or great aunt, this like very campy sort of like gay icon woman um, <laughs> that gave her this piece of advice or, or it was just like her outlook on life that she said, you'll have one great love in your life. And after you experience that, nothing else will compare. And I feel like it was almost setting up Pamela to, to have this worldview that she would be, it, it's like maybe both a blessing and a curse to Pamela right. that she believes this to be true. And maybe it is true or maybe it's not true, but just having that uh, be part of your formative experience, that this is the outlook that you understand, this is how you understand this is how life works, that then that really uh, lives out in her life as she meets Tommy. And then n- as we see, nothing compares to Tommy. And she talks about that very openly, which I think is uh-huh. interesting to say this very crazy experience and damaging, physically violent, emotionally abusive, potentially uh, thing happened to me. And I still have all this love for this person, which is a really interesting thing because like you also look at the relationship between her mother and her father, which oh. you know, when she was a young kid, her father was physically abusive to her mother and emotionally abusive and stalking and all of these things uh, that, that Pamela would then relive. And, and you see it with her parents, too. Her parents are, are back together in the documentary. They have reconciled. He is back in her life. And um, we don't know exactly how that all happened, but, like, that is life. And I think that's life for Pamela. And I think that her outlook on life has, like, very much been informed by her childhood experiences. Absolutely. I mean, I think the documentary did a service to her father in omitting a lot of information about the fucked up things he did not just to uh, Pamela's mom, but to Pamela herself. If you want more on that, read the book. It's it's all laid out there, and it does not paint a picture of a great man. And yet, he is very much present in her life. He's in the documentary. They seem to have a good relationship. And, and who are we, as outsiders, to say 
wow, I wouldn't want that for me, but if you want that for you, go forth. You know yourself better than I do. But as you're pointing out, there's just these overwhelming amount of dichotomies about Pamela. Another instance of it is she talks about in her youth when she first started to develop breasts, she thought that she had cancer. And so she would literally try and pound her breasts back into her chest. Cut to years later, she then becomes an icon buoyed by her breasts, her inflated breasts. And I just think there's something so interesting about going from pounding your your natural breasts into your chest to then making them a central feature of your body. And I just think there's something there about Pamela where it's like she, you think she's going to go one way and she's not only going to swerve, but she's going to swerve in the exact opposite direction and then maybe like swerve on back and then actually end up going down the road. It's just... There's this element to her where you never know what she's going to do or how she's going to feel about something. I think this lends itself to all of the Julian Assange stuff um, in her life where it's just sort of like, or even like there was a big controversy several years ago when uh, Pamela came out against the Me Too movement, um, which she's now sort of walked her statements back. But that's an example of like, it seems so counterintuitive to Pamela and yet no, like there is no counterintuitive when it comes to Pamela. So Pamela kept these journals throughout her entire life and and not just like regular journals, sketches and doodles and poems. And it seems like Pamela was someone who communicated, had this entire internal life that she put down on paper. And, And part of the bargain that she made with the documentarian Ryan White was, I will hand you over all of this. I don't want to reread my journals. It could potentially re-traumatize me, but here are the keys. Go forward. So they hire a voice actor who at the outset, I was like, who is this person that sounds nothing like Pamela? And I was like, this is such a mood shift. And then by the end, I was fully in love with the voice actor. And I was like, (laughs) she is an extension of Pamela. Where did you come down on the voice actor and even just the choice to include her in the film? I have to say, this is the most disappointing part of this whole experience for me. Mm. To begin this endeavor of self-reflection, writing a memoir, surely she read back those diary entries, right? Like, it's part of the process of digging back into what you were feeling and experiencing and what what was actually going on to revisit those diary entries. And so the fact that she stepped away from that was surprising to me, just given the nature of the project and the scope of the project, uh, both being a book and a documentary. And so it's like to only go halfway in surprised me. There's that uh, Tina Turner documentary on HBO. Did you watch it? I didn't watch it. They interview, I believe, the reporter that Tina spoke with for the very first time for People Magazine when she first came forward about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her then husband, Ike Turner. And one thing that the reporter says in the documentary was that he felt that she wanted to say it on the record so that it was said, so that it could be out of her and that she would never have to repeat it again. And I get that similar sense with Pamela where it's like she wants people to know, but she's not hoping to like do a round of press. And I wonder if she considered it at any point because I do think it would have added something. But I got to say, I fell in love with the voiceover actress by the end. She's mother. 
Well, Pamela's mother, she's a daughter. Yeah. I've been noticing in Pamela's press that people want to ask about the sex tape. It's it's an important piece of her story. Uh, it's a centerpiece of the book and the documentary. And so, of course, she has to talk about it while doing press. And I've noticed that uh, every interviewer prefaces the question by saying, I'm sorry I have to ask about this, or just one question about this. And I wonder what those conversations are behind the scenes as well, whether she's sort of saying like, look, I recognize I have to talk about this, but can we can we keep it limited? Um, and, and, and what does that say about... Uh, how well she has reconciled this event with uh, her current self. Has, has she really left this in the past? Has she not? I mean, her reaction to the Hulu series, Pam and Tommy, I think, um, really speaks to the fact that like th- this, this still does hurt. And when she revisits that time, she does relive those emotions. And it's not healthy for her, I think. And also worth noting that like she did not know about the Hulu series when she first agreed to do the documentary. You think that you're putting the camera up just to sort of like get cameras up on this seemingly interesting subject. And then she continues to have, you know, new machinations in her life story, which they just happen to capture, which is why I think to your point, yes, I think that the book contains so much more and I wanted more of what's in the book in the doc. But I think something that the doc is able to do that the book doesn't is capture some of those real-time moments with her, those like really candid moments when she has gets the phone call from her son, Brandon, who tells her that the first episode, or the first few episodes of the Hulu series has aired and she starts to eat a croissant um, yeah. and you sort of just watch her in a really challenging moment. There's also a really powerful moment with her son Brandon too, where they're watching some of the old tapes and it's clearly having an effect on mm-hmm. Pamela. And they decide, she's like, I need I need to pause and, and take a beat. And he gets up with her and they walk out arm in arm together. And I think one of the best gifts of this documentary and one of the major takeaways from Pamela's story is like, just how great of a mom she is. And in addition to that, how much like, her kids like so fiercely love her. I mean, even if you look at any of the comments on any Instagram post of hers, they're up in there. Like they just, they love their mom. They want to protect their mom. Also, like it was Brandon who went to Ryan White, the director, and was like, I want you to make this documentary about my mom. It wasn't Pamela that was like, I'm ready to tell my story. The last thing I wanted to ask about before we we uh, part ways um, is that, Pamela Anderson has an incredible amount of public goodwill right now. It is so hard to capture. I would put in that category Jennifer Coolidge. I would put Zendaya. I would put Beyonce. Um, I would put, is it, who else are you thinking? Like just, oh, Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Like just people that like people love and are rooting for. And oh, Pedro Pascal has that. Just the kind of people where it's like there's unanimous love. Someone like the the opposite of that is someone like a Harry Styles who has a huge faction, like a huge fandom around him, but also a lot of skeptics. Whereas like with this Pamela Coolidge Pedro this category, it's like naysayers don't exist. And I'm wondering what you think about that because to me that is a very high echelon of it's just a very really rarefied category to be in and I think it's certainly one Pamela was not beyond not anticipating I just don't even think it was something she was thinking about at all what do you make of you know her ascension to that status 
yes, we've talked about other documentaries uh, that have reframed people from this era, celebrities from this era. But like you think about Britney Spears and, and Britney had that moment. And I think that that moment has passed. Uh, and there's a lot of talk and criticism about uh, Britney's behavior and Instagram and all of that. And we don't have to dive into that. But like, that's not Pamela. I imagine a lot of doors have opened to Pamela in the past month that that previously were firmly shut. And I'm really, really excited and curious to see what's next for her because I do think the world is her oyster right now. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that she can seize on that and have her triumphant comeback because yes, Chicago was one thing, but you know, it's like a limited audience saw that. I didn't even know what happened until I saw the documentary, to be completely honest with you. And so, like, I think it was a personal triumph for her, but I don't think it was necessarily, like, a big career triumph. And I think the career triumph is yet to come. I agree. Pamela, if you are listening, we would love to have you on Shut Up Evan. I I will say I'm more eager to talk to her in, like, a year than I am right now. When someone's, like, this thick in a press cycle, I'm sort of like, I don't really have anything to add, nor do I, like, I think she said all of what needs to be said. Not to say the interviews that she's done haven't been compelling, but like, Pamela 2024, let's link up. Yeah, the White Lotus season three interview. Exactly. I want to turn now to a chat with the director of the Pamela documentary film, which is currently streaming on Netflix, Ryan White. Okay, Ryan, I'm so excited to chat with you because I feel like I'm the kind of person where when I see something that inspires me, it sort of becomes my entire personality. And that has been the case with your fabulous documentary. And so I'm just so excited to have you here today. So first and foremost, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. So I want to start by asking about the reception to the film, right? Uh, The film holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. As I'm sure you're well aware, we are in the midst of what some would call a Pamela Assance. I don't love the term Assance because I feel like we ascribe it to just about anyone these days, but... There is this sort of renewed interest and overwhelming outpouring of love from so many people toward Pamela, spurred by you. Uh, And I'm just curious how that feels to see the response that this film has brought about. Well, Pamela would say that she feels very overexposed in this moment, that she feels this is very... um egocentric to release a a memoir and documentary at the same time. So I think she's a little um, embarrassed by it all. But I, I definitely feel this sensation that she's getting rooted for in a way that she didn't her entire life. I mean, I we did we did three premieres of the film, LA, New York, and uh, Toronto. And the response to her in the room was so visceral people were so excited to root for her and I felt this at um you know the end of my film is her performing in Chicago on Broadway and I shot two shows there opening night and closing night and I felt the same thing while I was there like the the buzz in the room of people wanting to get behind her is really strong so as someone who spent the last couple years with her and really fell in love with her just as a a woman, as a friend. Um, It's really exciting to get to watch that. You know, I think she's finally not just a punchline 
to people and they're starting to to get behind her in a way that they haven't before. Now, I took one semester of a documentary film class during my time at NYU. And the one thing I remember about documentary filmmaking is that, you know, you want to go in with the thesis of what you're hoping to capture, but you're hoping for something unexpected to happen. That's what makes some of the best documentary films. And I think it's fair to say that happened in many ways with this documentary. From what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the intention was to make a film about her life as it existed today. Um, This was before the Chicago offer had come in. This was before Pam and Tommy was, the Hulu series was being made. So all of these things sort of like took place and you just happened to be there. Also a divorce. She was uh, newly married, I believe, when you began filming. So how did you sort of maneuver through all of these machinations that were happening in her life? So I didn't know Pamela before I made this film. Her son, Brandon, really thought we would get along. I had a lunch with Brandon. and he really wanted me to meet his mom. And then I didn't even know Pamela was Canadian when I first began this film. And I didn't know that she had returned to the island where she had grown up. Uh, and I thought like, what a what a beautiful full circle story with the bookends of this woman who grew up in this small town in Canada. And now she's returned there to live out her final years and married a local, you know, she married the contractor that was working on her house, Dan. And so I thought we had this tidy little narrative. Now I know Pamela very well, and I know there's no tidiness in her life. So it makes sense that she blew that all up in the in, in the year uh, that I was following her. But yeah, none of that stuff was even a glimmer in our eyes. Pam and Tommy was we didn't know about that when we began this documentary. So that's the the, the word of that series started. Um, percolating, you know, all the inflection points of that series, whether it was the announcement of the series or then when the trailer came out or when the series actually began streaming were really um, emotional, traumatic moments for Pamela. But the divorce as well, like I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And I have to, I have to say, and I think Pamela would agree that making this documentary stirred something up in her like I was asking her she was writing her memoir but I was also asking her to excavate her memory in a really intense way and I was visiting Canada probably once a month with these shoots and you know she was watching footage and I'm interviewing her over and over you talk about your NYU class you never really want your documentaries to um, change the trajectory of where the story's going, at least in a very traditional documentary sense. But this is one film where for sure the the, the fact that we were making a film and doing this process um, stirred something up in Pamela that I don't think would have happened without the film. So, you know, while she's just so blunt and so honest, so while she's watching all this footage, she's like looking at me saying, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, why? I'm not, I'm not ready to die yet. I thought I was coming here to die and like take care of my parents and marry this guy. And I have a lot of life left in me. The, the process of making the documentary sort of changed the trajectory of where her life was going. Which is such a remarkable gift that you've given her. I don't know if you see it that way, but I certainly as an outsider, it seems that way. Now you mentioned the memoir that she was writing and it's a unique thing to have a subject 
writing a memoir in tandem with a documentary being made about them. But in this instance, Pamela's memoir is entirely her words. I even talked to the editor of the book who said that Pamela was really, really specific about the edits that were made and wanted this to be totally hers. Whereas this documentary, it's my understanding that she kind of gave you the keys and was kind of like, here's the kingdom, come on inside, which is just so interesting that these things exist at the same time. Now, I finished the book earlier this week. There's a lot of things in the book that are not in the documentary, and I'm sure that's just because the medium of book allows for for much more. But I'll give you a for instance, something that really shocked me in reading the book was the gang rape um, from one of her boyfriends growing up um, that was not included in in the documentary. However, in the documentary, her molestation and uh, her very first rape, uh, those instances were included. So... I think with Pamela, it sounds like there's just so much to cover um, and so much that you could say, how could you not include this? But then it's like, well, because then how would you have room to include the other thing that you have to include? How did you make those decisions about which parts of her story to include and at what length? Um, Because for instance, the Julian Assange thing, for a lot of people, that's their most recent memory of Pamela. It takes up very little space in the documentary, probably because of necessity. So yeah, I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I always have to do this in my films. I have to be okay with sacrificing things that might be buzzy or sensational for whatever reason. And the fact that Pamela was writing the memoir was a real blessing in disguise in making this film. First of all, because I got to read. So I had that Zoom with Pamela and then she sent me her manuscript, which was a huge boon for me because I was able to not start from square one when I was when I was having these conversations with her I was basically um, able to read her whole life story which I knew nothing about before um, I ever sat down with her but you know I really wanted to make a character portrait of a woman who's been through a lot of sexual trauma but still is the most romantic woman that you will ever meet. And that meant leaving a lot of stories on the cutting room floor. I don't know how long her audiobook is, but my guess is it's probably like eight or nine hours and a film is an hour and a half, you know? So I would always say to Pamela, like, you're going to be able to fit so much more in your memoir than I'm going to be able to fit in my documentary. But the fact that she was writing that and that was her pet project, she was very uninterested in the documentary, which sounds which sounds bad, but I love that as a storyteller. Like she would never ask questions about the edit. She never watched the film until it was completely finished. She never asked how we were using the archival or her diaries. Uh, She's very experiential. Like she loves being in the moment. Um, Like she's told me before, David LaChapelle is one of her best friends and has photographed her a million times. Uh, it drives him crazy because she never she never wants to look at the photos that he took. She loves the experience of, uh, you know, artists colliding and the modeling part of it, but she doesn't she's not interested in the final product. And the documentary was very similar. Like when I showed up, she loved doing things and she loved being present and, you know, whatever that would be running around the island, um, going to buy a hair dye at the drugstore. She loved doing the things, but she was not interested in how I was going to um, sculpt it into a film. That's incredibly rare, especially with a celebrity of her of her stature. That's a huge outlier compared to most of my films. 
yeah, I mean, even in talking to celebrities on this podcast, we deal so much with either a reticence to say the thing or an after the fact feeling like I want to change the way I said this because it might be perceived a certain way. And it sounds so exciting to have a subject who is not interested in how she is perceived by others. That is so incredibly rare in a celebrity, also just in human beings these days, I would imagine. Now, I want to talk about your filmmaking. I think when you have a subject as compelling as Pamela, the filmmaking can get lost in the sauce when people talk about this great work. And I think that there are so many choices that you made throughout this film in in terms of how you chose to tell the story, what you chose to frame that are so important. I want to point out just two. Um, One is when she's talking about her very first photo shoot with Playboy. She says, quote, when I got to that first Playboy photo shoot, I I just just said, said, like, why am I so freaking paralyzed by the shyness. I'm so sick of all this past that's created this insecurity in me. It's like a prison. I have to break out of it. From the first snap of the picture, I felt like I was throwing myself off a bridge and falling and the f- just like snap. And then you do this filmmaker trick, I don't know how to describe it, where all of a sudden you you hear the flash ball and it snaps to that first photo of her and it is just so arresting because of the way that you like throttled us into that image. And then another one I want to bring up is just, um, there's this moment towards the end of the film when she's riffing on some of her later in life lovers and the music kind of swells up as she starts to present a new lover, someone that she's going to spend the rest of her life with and then Pamela will very cavalierly just be like, and then that didn't work out. And he ended up being a big drug addict. And then the music will just shudder. And it's those decisions that you make throughout the film that I think really enhance this experience. And there's just a very clear love that you have for her. Can you talk about the the filmmaking process beyond just capturing the footage, but but how, how the edit worked? Well, I had great editors. Uh, and the two examples that you just brought up are two very prime anecdotes of what I was talking about earlier, that I felt like this was a story about sexual trauma and reclaiming your sexual identity, like this, this, um, the peaks and valleys that that Pamela has been on her whole entire life, including with Pam and Tommy when that came out, um, and and re-traumatizing her. Um, So that moment, like Pamela's very I loved her as a documentary subject because she's always, she lives in a gray area. There's no, Pamela does not subscribe to any ideology, which has made her controversial in the past, but she never, she never picks a lane that you would expect her to. And so to me, that makes, that makes at least me as the filmmaker, but I also hope the audience makes us challenge a lot of our preconceived notions of her. Like a lot of us look down on Playboy or think of that, um as exploitative and Pamela sees that as one of the most powerful moments in her life and empowering moments in her life and how who am I to disagree with that you know when she found that as the moment she took her sexuality back likewise all of the romance in her life no matter how many times it didn't work out um you know or she's been burned by men that she fell in love with She's still that eternal romantic. So I think the moment you're referring to is with Rick Solomon when she kind of um, marries him and it doesn't work out, and then they and then they start back up to get married again, and it and it and it ends disastrously again. Um, but that was like Pamela said from the very beginning, like there's no guardrails in making this film. You can ask me anything. Like it's it's it probably sounds unbelievable, but there is not one time 
that Pamela ever said, like, I don't want to talk about that, or why are you asking about that, or I don't want that in the movie. Anything I asked about, um, she was game, and I think she was very ready for the first time to not protect other people. Um, and so that, I believe, meant being completely honest about these things. Like, I've got um, the Tim Allen stuff. Home Improvement's not even in my film, but I get asked about it all the time, the Tim Allen stuff. Um, the offer that Sylvester Stallone made to her is in my film and I get asked about it all the time. And my feeling on Pamela is like, this is a woman whose North Star is the truth. I mean, Julian Assange is a part of that. I didn't want Julian Assange to be a rabbit hole. Like when I, whenever I would tell people I was making a film about Pamela, they would usually bring up three things. It was the, the sex tape. It was Julian Assange and it was Vladimir Putin. Um, and those are the things that have grabbed the attention of pop culture for whatever reason. And I wanted all three of those things to be included in the film. But to me, those weren't as interesting as this character portrait. So, you know, I I, I go into all three of those, but but quite quite briefly. So it was a lot of experimentation in the edit room to see how much real estate we would dedicate to those subjects without totally losing the audience where they would want to know so much more and be angry that we didn't spend 15 minutes on Assange. Hmm. Now you say that, you know, Pamela had this approach that was like, nothing is off the table, but I do have one question because there is something that Pamela says in the doc. She says that we'll never know who took the sex tape from her. Um, but the fact is we do know who took the sex tape from her. I, I couldn't get a sense of whether or not she was in denial. It's not for me to really say, but like, for instance, someone has come forward and said they are the person that took this tape and that it's been proven the fact that Tommy Lee was not paying the contractors for the work they were doing at the time. And there remain just some questions that like I have as someone that's interested in any kind of true crime, which is like, you know, if it was hidden behind this wall, how did the thieves know even where these tapes were? And why would they even be going in there if they didn't know about them, which can lead down the rabbit hole of like, did Tommy Lee play some role in this? There's a lot of questions that get asked. I realize that you're not making a true crime documentary here. Um, but did, did you have any questions about that while you were making this film while she was offering that? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised, but I believe that is totally genuine. Like, Pamela is very disconnected, especially over the last 20-something years. Like, when I met Pamela, she had a cell phone that didn't even... It only did phone calls. I think it's called a light phone. It only did phone calls and texts. And I remember the first shoot I ever did with her, it sat plugged in for five days without ever moving from a table. So she's not someone who's spending a lot of time on the internet or or Googling herself. And so she was, she again, it's that question of like, well, I know the answers because I've read the Rolling Stone article and I watched Pam and Tommy because I was making this documentary. But who am I, first of all, to give her that information if she doesn't want it? Um, but second of all, know that that information would would cause her to start spinning. So I tried, whenever Pam and Tommy came up, I tried to be very fly on the wall and not insert myself in a way that would change the trajectory. So we have that scene in the film where Brandon, her son, calls her and tells her uh, that the series has come out. And she's like totally clueless. He's telling her things that now that we live in a post-Pam and Tommy world that we all know, like about the electrician or about 
the guy was trying to be a porn star and you're, you're watching her. A lot of this isn't in my film, but that was, you know, probably a, a 30 minute phone call that I filmed. You're watching her um, react in a way that she doesn't have any of that information. She's clueless about this stuff. She didn't even know there was a Rolling Stone article about it. And I thought that was really, I thought that was really fascinating. You, you know, that you mentioned the line, like, I don't care who stole it. Like they made a whole show about the people that stole it, uh, that really humanized those people too, or gave them motives uh, that are relatable or or sympathetic to steal it. And Pamela just did not care. But that's very Pamela. She doesn't look back a lot. So she's very free spiritish in that way. Like I always describe her as a fairy. She's always like wandering. Even when you're trying to film her, she's never sitting still. She's always wandering. And I'm like running around uh, with a camera following her. And she's never taken the time to try to put those pieces together. It's just unimportant to her. She feels like it ruined her marriage and her family and her career. And she's not interested in the players or or the who or why it all went down. And that makes sense. That could be self-protection. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a wave of television and film right now and documentaries centered on the reframing and recontextualizing of celebrity women's stories. I'm thinking about Framing Britney Spears, American Crime Story Impeachment, Blonde, and then of course, you know, Pam and Tommy. Um, the difference in this documentary, which I think it has in common with impeachment, is the participation of the subject, which I think is so key here. And one thing that Pamela and you have emphasized throughout the press tour for this film is that this is not Pamela trying to set the record straight or change people's minds about her so much as it is just her telling her story, which I think so much of what you're saying now, her lack of desire to sort of understand herself or prove herself to be some way to people sort of anchored this. But I'm wondering as a filmmaker, what you make of this trend, especially in instances like, for instance, reframing Britney Spears, where the subject is not involved and does not uh, receive any compensation, which in its own way is sort of taking advantage of the person in a whole different way the way I see it. Yeah, I mean, I have very complicated feelings about this because as as a documentary filmmaker, I believe um, staunchly that we have to be able to make films, tell stories about people who aren't necessarily participating. I mean, that's journalism, right? That's telling the truth. That's holding truth to power. Um, I'm not typically that type of filmmaker. Like most of my filmography is about um, establishing a bond with someone and sort of collaborating on a story. But I have many friends and colleagues where I think that's um, totally important that that we're able to do that as, as documentary filmmakers. But when you are talking about trauma and especially sexual trauma, which I've done a lot of documentaries or a few documentaries about at least, um, to not involve the victim or survivor, whatever you call it, um, in that decision-making process, like, is it worth it to re-traumatize that person just for the sake of entertainment or even telling an important story? Because I think Pam and Tommy, like, if that series accomplish anything I think it's really reframed like like I was always at the beginning of making that this film before that series came out having to explain to people 
that the sex tape was stolen and that this was a robbery and that they did not leak it. And that series has kind of made that common knowledge now that this was a crime. As far as the public's uh, understanding of this incident, I think it helped in that way. But watching what Pamela went through and watching that series come out and like the worst moment, the worst juncture of her entire life that the country was talking all about it again was really, really hurtful. So I don't know. I think we have to ask ourselves, like, is it worth it? And I remember, I remember whenever I was making the film, I would, I would tell friends or, you know, people I met at dinner parties, like people love to ask documentary filmmakers, what are you working on? And I would say, I'm making a film about Pamela Anderson. And I like the, almost always the, the follow-up question to that would be like, is she participating or is it just about her? And I always remember being so like taken aback by that because I'm like, well, of course she's participating. I'm not going to make a film about Pamela Anderson unless Pamela Anderson is in it and telling her story. You know, Pamela wasn't a producer on this film. Her son was, and he protected the, the archive in a lot of ways, the family archive. Uh, but I feel like in some ways, Pamela was the perfect marriage of those two things of like getting to re-examine whatever that narrative is from what's often the 90s but also have that person play an active role in retelling that narrative so i want to ask about protectiveness of subject and i find this to be a particularly compelling conversation to have with you because i had a long call with jennifer coolidge about this documentary after it aired. And one thing that Coolidge spoke to me about was these similarities that she feels between her life and Pamela's, particularly as really early advocates in it for animals early on in their careers before it became something that is as common as it is today. I've always felt since I first interviewed Coolidge and then we subsequently became friends, I've felt this protectiveness about her because now people start to reach out to me with requests that have nothing to do with me just because they know I have access to her. And I start to, by proxy, witness the ways in which people can take advantage of a person, especially when they are within the zeitgeist. And I'm wondering, you know, you went in with, you know, strictly being, I don't know if coworkers is the word, but whatever the term would be. And then it sounds like you developed a friendship throughout this process. And I imagine you feel a similar sense of, wanting to protect her from the insidious forces that are out there. Um, I'm wondering how you strike that balance between wanting to be an objective storyteller, documentarian, but also feeling that this is a friend and someone who, yeah, I would imagine you want to protect. I, yeah, it's something I struggle with in, in all my films, even when they're not films about famous people. Like usually my my the subjects of my films are people who are being incredibly vulnerable and open about um often something that was very traumatic in their lives and so um i see it uh, i see do my documentary filmmaking at least like you said co-workers but i see always see it as a a collaboration like i they have to trust me to take care of their story if i want them to open up. And Pamela is a very extreme example of this. I am incredibly protective of Pamela because I, I see uh, how open she is. Like, I, it's, it's crazy. It's insane to me that this woman gave me all of her diaries from her entire life. We had so many, we had to drive them back from Canada in a cargo van 
Um, and I remember thinking like, why are you doing this? This is too trusting. And I think it's part of a, it's part of what makes Pamela really interesting. And I would argue lovable person is no matter how much she's gotten burned or um, people have fucked her over, that she's still willing to like hand all of her diaries over to a documentary filmmaker that she's only known for a few months. I am very protective of her because I know how trusting she was with me. And um, it sounds hypocritical, but then I see her being trusting with other people. And I'm like, ah, oh, but do you know that guy? Do you know that woman? Like, are you sure you should be so open with them? But it's also, it's also, I think what's magical about Pamela is that openness and trust in other people. Okay, I want to end our time by asking about what you want from Pamela next. And I realize it's, you know, this is just if you had it your way. But, you know, she she has this memoir out. She has a documentary out. I see that she's now started a newsletter, which I think is as a result of her understanding that so many people are connecting not just with her story, but her prose and want more of that writing. And so it seems like she's begun this newsletter. Uh, obviously, there's a big chatter on the internet about wanting her to appear in season three of The White Lotus. Drew Barrymore even asked her about it. That was a very interesting interview, by the way, because you could tell that there's this energy exchange where it's very new for Pamela to be experiencing this level of adoration from people, whether it just be someone like Drew or, you know, fans clamoring to have her on this show. She has not really spoken yet about where she sees her life and or career going from here. But it sounds like, as you said at the top of this interview, something about this memoir, documentary, slash moment in time has spurred something in her to say, my life is not over. Um, this could be just the beginning of something entirely new. If you had it your way, where where would you like to see her go? And I think I'm speaking more professionally than anything else. Well, Pamela is a rebel through and through. And I had to learn that as a director. She told me we went on this road trip um, while we were making the film from Canada down to, to California. Um, she and I and her assistant, Jonathan, I remember her at dinner one night telling me like, throughout my career, if a photo shoot director ever told me like, you can wear anything tomorrow, just don't wear red. She would, she said, I would show up in red. And she said, Ryan, like if I'm ever doing that to you, let me know because that's just my, that's my natural inclination is to rebel. And I don't think she really meant that because I never, whenever I tried to say like, oh, but you're rebelling, she would still rebel. So I had to be very nimble as a director in knowing that Pamela was always gonna go the Pamela root. Uh, and so it meant not directing my subject in a way that I'm used to in most of my films. And I and I feel like she's going to be like that for the rest of her life. And so I, of course, while we were making the film was like, you know, you're so funny. You're so, you're such a, you're actually a great actor. Like you should be doing Netflix romantic comedies and you know, making bank that way. And she's just not interested in ever following a path that people prescribe for her. So that, I mean, that's why that's that the final line in my film. She says, I don't know where I'm going. Maybe I'll know next week. And that's very, to me, that was like the embodiment of Pamela, such a free spirit. So, I mean, like, listen, personally, I would love to see her on White Lotus season three. Um, I would love to see Pamela doing more comedy. Um, 
I would love to see her actually getting to act. I mean, she loves to write and she's a great writer. She writes all day long. So I would love for her to have more opportunities um, to write. But I learned there's no guessing what she's going to do next. So I, I like, like to back to the beginning of our conversation, I just like the idea that I'm seeing crowds and people really rooting for her, whatever that is that she decides uh, to do. And I, I shared with her um, the Rotten Tomatoes score that you alluded to and like Pamela she, she's disconnected so she didn't know any of these reviews of the movie or the book uh and she jokes like oh my god I've never gotten a good review in my life maybe I maybe I should have been playing myself all along and not, not playing other roles and I don't know I feel like there's something special about the real Pamela Anderson so I don't even know if that's acting or modeling or if that's just some sort of um vehicle for her to just be herself because I think the magic of Pamela Anderson I watched it a million times while I was making this film is she's so relatable if she just had a vehicle for um being herself I think that could be an incredible final you know final 40 years of her life and a great example of this is actually she did a British Vogue what's in my bag video it's like I think three or four minutes long and every item and then you know the description of each of those items is so iconic each and every single one that i think it just proves the fact that like there's just a quality about her this enigmatic quality and to your point i think part of the intrigue from so many people is that she's at once one of the most famous people that's ever lived and also so deeply relatable and i think that duality that people pick up on whether consciously or unconsciously is what magnetizes people to them her story seems just so unbelievable and yet she's so right there she feels so present she feels like someone that we've encountered despite the fact that she's superhuman in so many ways and yet human um ryan thank you so much i just want to underline this conversation by saying how much i love this film and i particularly love the care and love that you have for her and then by proxy that that love that translates into this film i think that her story is incredible, but it needs the right container to hold it. And I think you created a beautiful container. Thank you so much. I'm glad you liked it. Have a great rest of your day. And I hope to chat with you again sometime. Bye. Bye. Thanks. That was fun. When we come back, a chat with actress and director and producer Elizabeth Banks. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Sunday Riley. I was going to say it's the beauty industry's best kept secret, but it's really no secret. Sunday Riley is the go-to brand for those who want great skin at a great value. I'm a huge fan of all of their products, even though my application process could use some refinement, but my current favorite of their offerings is their Good Jeans Lactic Acid Treatment. Good Jeans deeply exfoliates the dull surface of the skin for instant glow and radiance. As dull, dead surface cells are removed, clarity and smoothness are restored. No wonder it was listed as one of InStyle Magazine's best beauty buys of 2022. Go to sundayriley.com to check out Good Jeans as well as their full range of product offerings. That's sundayriley.com. Shut up, Evan. So I am so excited to chat with you about this movie because I saw it on Friday and obviously it has not been released yet, so I can't talk to anyone about it. And there's so much to say about this movie, so who better than to say it with than the director herself. So thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you for seeing the movie. I'm thrilled you got a chance to check it out. I'm thrilled I did. And I'm thrilled everyone else is going to have the opportunity to because this is a run, don't walk picture. Now, before we talk Cocaine Bear, though, we are less than 24 hours out from last night's uh, halftime show at the Super Bowl. I saw you were tweeting about it last night. Uh, Just want to get your thoughts. What did you make of Rihanna's halftime performance? Iconic, of course. As a director, my mind was on who is responsible for her safety? Like who is making sure that she can just float above everybody Yeah, and be calm? She just seems so like in her power standing up there representing like pregnant women, black women, like this whole thing was just iconic across the board. Beautiful. And so well shot too. I mean, like there were so many moments. I didn't know if she was moving. Yeah. Or the camera was. The drone footage. It was so impressive. Yeah. So from one big swing to the next, what I want to start by asking you about this film and, and why I think I am loving it so much and so excited to dialogue with you about it is this is just such a big swing. And I feel like increasingly, and I'm not just talking about filmmaking, in general, I feel like people are more reticent to take big swings in 2023 culturally um, because you can get more blowback as a result. And I'm just wondering what gave you the conviction to go big? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I was saying to someone else that I read this script initially in April 2020. So I was at home, scared, and felt like chaos, you know? And then I read this script and I thought, well, there's no more chaotic thing than a bear high on cocaine. So now I am realizing a little bit that my psychology (laughs) sort of was, if I could direct this movie, it was a little bit of a way to tame the chaos. And I also did feel like, if I'm being totally honest, that I was being put in a box as like some sort of, because I get to do things as a woman that men normally do, everyone assumes you're like on some, you've got some like feminist manifestos to be putting out in the world. I just really wanted to make something that nobody could sort of accuse of being like, you know, frankly, feminist, which I love that word. I am a feminist. I proudly wear the label, but I just felt like I was being put in a box that I didn't want to be put in by my profession. And by the way, I've been put in a lot of boxes. I just felt like this was another way to to just break people's ideas, not just of what I am interested in and capable of and want to be in stories I want to tell and um, jobs I want to do, but also a little bit breaking down mythology around like women doing really technical work because this movie was also very technically um you know interesting it was complicated it's complex to put a a computer generated bear into the middle of this action and and what a payoff it has how are you describing this movie to people that have not yet seen the trailer have not experienced the social media buzz that is like growing day by day for this film to just the complete bystander who knows nothing. What are you telling them? I tell them that it's inspired by the true story of a drug runner who dropped drugs into the woods and didn't realize that a bear would get into the drugs. And then we imagine a bunch of humans in those woods that come across a bear that they don't realize has gotten into the supply. It's as simple as the title. It kind of tells you everything. Cocaine bear. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) One of the great things about this film and why I find it such masterful filmmaking is like the tone that you set, right? Because this film is so reliant on 
audiences buying into the tone, understanding the tone and going with it. And that's the fun thing about this. There's a roller coaster feeling about this film where it's like, once you realize where the coaster is going or rather your inability to know where it's going, once you accept that and, and buckle in, you just go for the ride. How do you as a director generate tone? That's something I just know nothing about. Yeah, it's actually the thing that I um, am most concerned with. For me, the tone, a lot of the tone was in the script in that when the script I read was very much like a Coen Brothers movie with sort of a high bear doing cocaine, like sort of layered over it. And that was a lot of great characters. I love, I'm an actor first. So when I read things, I'm always reading them for the characters and the movie, the idea of the movie is already silly and, and crazy. So how do we actually ground it in like people's real reactions to coming across? this bear and making sure everybody had something else going on. I love characters that have other things going on. You know, so like Margot Martindale's character, she wanted to work at Yellowstone. She's ambitious and she's in love with Jesse Tyler Ferguson's character, right? <laughs> and just wants to have a day alone in the woods with a man that she's fond of. Like really grounded emotional stakes for these characters and then throw a, a crazy high bear into the mix. You're actually, hopefully, connecting a little bit to these people who who want things out of life and they're, the obstacle is the bear's high. You know, there's almost like a Stephen Sondheim into the woods-like <laughs> quality about this film where it's like all of these characters with these like diverging storylines all come together in this woods. Um, the difference in this story is being, you know, there's a bear on cocaine, which is a significant departure from Sondheim text. But I do feel like there's some similarities there. Now, you know, speaking about tone, and I think another big component of this is the gore, uh, which I just love. And I have to imagine, along with the gore and the concept, I just have to imagine there were a lot of times you were told no or questioned throughout this process about whether this was going to work because, like I said, this is a big swing. How did you sort of hold your ground on knowing this is something that I know this film needs when perhaps those outside of the industry that are the yes-no people might have scoffed or said, this won't work? And you're like, no, 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 trust me. You know, I was able to do that at the very beginning of the process. I presented the vision very early, presented a lot of gore, presented some jokes, talked about the bear and how realistic the bear had to be. I really, I wanted a photorealistic Nat Geo documentary bear. Like I was like, I want you, I, and people do ask me what it was like to work with a real bear and nothing makes me happier than hearing that. And then you have to do the job. You have to deliver what you promise. That's what the director's job is. You know, I promise it's going to be like this and it's going to be funny. It's going to be gory. It's going to be scary. And it's going to be, you know, crazy. And it's going to be entertaining. And, and it's going to be under two hours. In all aspects of your life, in whatever business you're in, um, if you set the expectation properly from the beginning, you hopefully won't be very disappointed or disappointing to your partners. Mm. You know, you mentioned that running time, which I think people are really going to like. I feel like over the last few years, there's been this amplified conversation around people online, I should say, wanting movies to be shorter. This feeling like that movies have gotten yeah. too long. Is that something that you've absorbed at all? Have you have you heard this discourse? I feel it too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't name any names, but I certainly go to things and think, I mean, that could have been 20 minutes shorter, you know? Look, I, I think part of the art form, frankly, for me in telling a story as a movie is sort of the expectation that like, you don't, you're not gonna need a bathroom break. 
so that to me is always a challenge is like, how do I be super efficient with my storytelling and feel like I've done right by the story? You know, there are absolutely things that should be longer. I just am like, should we watch that on television then? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, it's just, it's about the art form and, and what the story requires, you know? And to me, efficiency of storytelling is part of the art form and the talent of putting it together. Yeah. This makes me think a lot about like the art of the sitcom, right? And like the yes. joke density needed in sometimes like I forget the fact that these entire stories play out in 22 minutes. That's right. But they understand the economy of time that they have. And so they have to create within their container. Now, this is your third feature film directing. You directed 2015's Pitch Perfect 2 and 2019's Charlie's Angels. And I'm wondering how this time was different than those other two experiences. Well, the great news is that you learn on every job and bring what you learned to the next thing. So I felt the most confident this, this time around. People are like, these movies are so different. And I'm kind of like, ah, they're kind of the same movie over and over. <laughs> like I made a really, uh, I made a comedy with mo a big cast and put it inside of a musical with set pieces that happened to have like singing, dancing, but required a lot of technical aspects. Then I made like a really fun comedy with action heroines, you know, big cast that had a lot of technical aspects with the car chases and the, you know, the shootouts and the whatever and the big sets. And now I've made, you know, a multiple POV, a uh, very funny character driven piece that's inside of a horror movie. Mm. The good news is this one was like a new challenge with the CGI and the technical aspects of working with Weta Digital Workshop. Um, out of New Zealand and creating this creating this bear and all, all the visual effects. I want to zero in on like one moment in particular because it, it heavily, you know, uses this this these special effects. And it's so you have these characters, they're in an ambulance, they're trying to run away from this bear, and the titular cocaine bear is chasing them from behind and without spoiling too much, eventually finds its way into the ambulance and the action is all centered around something that is not there because I hate to break it to some people, I guess, still believe there was a bear, but anyway, maybe we don't want to break that illusion. <laughs> but but needless to say, I imagine that just had to be so technically complicated to film. How do you how do you do something like that? Not everything that happens in the sequence was in the script. So we I really got to build out all of the set pieces and every set piece had um, had an influence, a, a sort of a. Uh, a North Star. So this particular one um, was Fast and the Furious, where one of the cars is a bear. We drew it, we had like, you know, storyboards, and then we do what's called pre-visualization or pre-vis, where they sort of animate, very crudely animate what's going to happen. And then we start to put people into the scenarios and we figure out what are we going to shoot real, what's going to be on green screen, um, and then all the plates for everything that is going to have the bear in it. And then all the stunt performers, the stunt drivers, you know, it's really just a big checklist. I love organizing things and checking things off lists. Um, and then months of, uh, CGI work after the fact, the very first edit of it that had no bear, like just people yelling and things happening. I knew it was going to work. 
So two of the actors I want to ask you about, uh, one of which is in that ambulance scene, is Margot Martindale, who delivers such an incredible performance and in such a role you have never before seen Margot Martindale in. I have to imagine that she is not handed opportunities like this often. And again, going back to that theme of big swings, Margot Martindale takes this and she runs. Yes. And runs she does. Um, so I'm just wondering, what was it like working with Margot Martindale on a project like this? So I had worked with Margot on a TV series called Mrs. America. And I went to set, I was like, you better know your lines, Elizabeth Banks. Like you are not gonna fuck around with Margot Martindale. Like she is gonna come prepared. She's like a theater actress, you know, who is very serious. And, and then I got there and she was like singing show tunes <laughs> and I joined in. So all that's the background, right? She is very funny. She's very game. And she, I knew she would get the tone. She also has an incredible real accent because she's from Texas. And then I went to see Margot in Connecticut when I was putting the movie together. And I was not prepared to say like, I need you to be in this movie, but I wanted to whet her appetite. So we went to dinner and she's like, what are you working on? And I just kind of like casually was like, I'm kind of maybe putting this movie together and sort of told her what it was. And she's like, that sounds insane. And I thought, yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> she'll be on the hook and then um i finally got everybody to sort of yes agree like it should be margo because that was one area where everyone was like margo really and i was like you guys everyone trust me it's got to be margo i called her up and she was like i don't i can't do these stuff like i i read this script like i don't fire guns and so much somewhere i was like margo i promise i will i'll make you look great i'm gonna work this out for you it's gonna be great and I'm very lucky that I have a friend that trusted me. And let me assuage any fears. Margot Martindale can hold a gun. She can do more than just hold a gun. She can shoot a gun. Um, another actor and performance I want to center in on is Ray Liotta. This was sadly his last performance before he passed away. And what I think is so remarkable about this performance is sometimes you get a final role from an actor and it's not their best role. And so you kind of have to be like, oh, I want to remember them from all these other great films they once made, but this is actually a spectacular final role for Ray Liotta, and it's such a showcase of his talents. And so I'm just wondering what it was like to work with him and have this be his, his final film role. Well, of course, I wish that was not the case. Um, yes. I, I'm also so grateful to Ray. He, he came very joyfully to the set every day. We just were in the Mutual Respect Society from day one. He and I made a film together a long time ago. I'd seen how professional he was on set. I knew what he was capable of, but I also knew how charming he is. And it really felt like charm was had to be part of this guy's sort of essence and backstory. You know, you want to believe that that these guys like follow. Um, he's sort of he's a, a, a kingpin, if you will, in the in the film and. O'Shea Jackson Jr. and Alden and other people have to, you have to believe that they follow him, you know, that he's a real sort of leader, um, but but also like tough love, you know, and, and also a comically unfit grandpa. So <laughs> it's a lot going on that had to be conveyed very quickly. He asked for more jokes, actually, when he first read the script. He was like, everybody seems like they got a lot of jokes. People get to be funny. 
Like I need some more, you know, I want more lines. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> like I want to be more quirky, you know? Yeah, it really is is quite a performance. Um, I have been obsessed with the concept of camp all my life, but particularly since the Met Gala themed around camp, suddenly there became like a much larger conversation about camp. Yes. What is camp? What is the origin of camp? Is this camp? Is this not camp? Who created camp? Yeah. Exactly. And I've been having this conversation with people around the film Megan, and uh -huh. I don't think Megan is campy because to me, it was developed with an intention toward being perceived as campy, and therefore it's disqualified. That's just me. And again, that's not to say the intention was even to make something campy. That's just my, how I perceive it. Yeah. I'm wondering in that vein, do you feel like Cocaine Bear is camp? I'm hoping for cult but not necessarily camp. Mm. You know, I, I grew my very first film was What Had American Summer. And so uh, you, this movie it has an homage. The very beginning of the movie is Jane. It's the same song that opens What Had American Summer. It opens this movie. And it's multiple storylines and people coming together and it's the woods and you know, there was just something about how do you create something that has layers to it so you have to watch it more than one time. Camp is something that I feel like, I agree, I think you can't try too hard. I don't know that Cocaine Bear is fabulous enough for camp, but for cult, I could see it. Megan, I, I, I have no idea how that movie came together. But I will say that the design of Megan herself, the outfit and the bow and the, you know, the proportions, like everything, the hair, the eyeballs, they just fucking nailed it. Um, and to me that, that when the intention is to just create something a little iconic, that's how you get camp. And that's the, that's what Megan's, the look did for me. People want to wear, I mean, it's going to be a huge Halloween costume. <laughs> We're just going to see an army of Megan's out and about. Um, hey, frankly, I look forward to it. Now, something that Megan and Cocaine Bear have in common is genius marketing. And I feel like there's something really to be said about the power of marketing. Obviously, people know this. I'm not saying anything original, but also sort of like how you connect with people, where you find your audience these days. It's changed, right? It's not just billboards and TV ads. And I feel like Cocaine Bear has been so savvy. And I'm talking not just like the Twitter presence. I'm also thinking about your recent variety shoot with where those photos alone, again, talking about tone, conveyed both who you are and, and what your approach to this film is. And I'm wondering if you can talk at all about like how you plan a marketing strategy around a film like this. <laughs> well, we have great partners in Universal. So Universal put out both Megan and Cocaine Bear. So it's the same marketing team. So it's it's not a coincidence that you're noticing both of them. Um, I think Michael Moses, who's the head of um, Universal's marketing team, is amazing. Tone is really important to him. He calls it flavor. And I think that's right. It's like you want to make sure that the flavor of the campaign really represents the movie, so one of, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the parameters I wanted to put on this film when I signed on to it. One of them was, I just want to make sure we're really going to, are we committed to the title Cocaine Bear? Because so much of the tone is in that title. And I think that's it. It's the authenticity of just being like, this is the thing. We're not hiding the ball. 
We're telling you what it's going to be. And everything lines up behind the tone of the movie. So I, for instance, love the Twitter feed. The very first tweet was like, I'm the bear that ate cocaine. This is my story. And I thought they, they've nailed it already. You know, <laughs> like that's already funny. There's been a lot of talk generated online about the possibility of Cocaine Shark, which is, you know, a sequel that has been dreamt up by the fan base at this point. Um, you've expressed interest in coming back around for Cocaine Shark. Now, I'm curious, though. I understand, again, this is a hypothetical production here. Very hypothetical. Right, right, right. But I'm just curious. I was thinking this through, and it's like, you know, cocaine uh, famously can't get wet. And so I'm curious, have you thought at all about how how this would exist, how the cocaine, is the, is the shark coming above water here? Or like, how would that work? Obviously you're not as pro about this as I am. It comes wrapped in plastic for just this kind of scenario. The drug runners know that their, their supply cannot get wet. So they wrap it in, in plastic, multiple layers of plastic actually. So I imagine that the shark just eats mm -hmm. it whole in the plastic and all Got and it. then it's like it's like when you get a gel capsule pill right like you put it and then it dissolves in your stomach thank you i had not thought it through i was imagining a shark doing a line but clearly you know they can just go for the whole bag they're just gonna eat it yeah um, I want to ask you a question about Charlie's Angels. In a recent variety profile written by Adam B. Very, very, uh, you are asked to discuss the film's middling success, to which you said, quote, I took full responsibility for Charlie's Angels. No one else did. <laughs> he writes that you fixed him with a hard stare at this point and then added, quote, it was all laid on me and I happily accepted because what else am I going to do? I was just so struck by that quote. I had to reread that paragraph several times. I imagine that there's quite a there there. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you could maybe expound on as to saying more. Here's what I'll say. I absolutely loved making that movie. And the response that I mostly get, I remember I went on opening weekend and there was a row of, of teenage girls there for like a 16th birthday. Um, I sat behind them and watched them all like love the movie and laugh at the movie and clap at the end of the movie. And that's what I made the movie for. Yeah. So when people ask me about the success of Charlie's Angels, it's 100% a success in my heart. And I, I can only control what I can control. So when people ask me about the box office, I kind of want to be like, why are you asking me? Go ask who, go ask the people who put the movie out and marketed it and fun, you know, go, why are you talking to me about that? I had no control over that. Fair enough. If I could reframe my question, the reason I bring it up actually is more because the operative word of you saying it was laid on me and I happily accepted. I think that's what I was struck by about the quote was the idea that, you know, some people would just accept it. But I, I find that use of the word happily. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it caught my attention. I was able to put out a movie that I'm proud of. Fair. When I read that quote, I couldn't help but be reminded of Pamela Anderson's new book, Love Pamela, and the accompanying documentary, Pamela, A Love Story, which is about a woman taking on the brunt of a wrongdoing that wasn't hers to take on. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to read the book or watch the documentary yet. Uh, no, I haven't. I wish. The thing I really am intrigued by, because I haven't seen it yet, is it seems like her relationship with her kids is so lovely. And that's what I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a mom with two boys. Um, I don't think I have very much else in common with Pamela Anderson, but I love that she seems like such a loving, caring mom that her boys really wanted to like present her in the light that she probably really lives in, right? And I'm excited to see it. 
Yeah, I definitely highly recommend. Now, you've continued to have so many projects on your plate. You have so many projects in pre-production. And I was looking back at your at the work you've done. You've done, you know, the big budget, high pay stuff, your Pitch Perfect and your Hunger Games. And you've also done quieter, more interior projects. I was thinking specifically about 2022's Call Jane, directed by the great Phyllis Nage. And this is not to say that the big budget stuff is less legitimate, but it is to say that there are a number of actors out there that wouldn't take on a project like Call Jane and instead want to focus on finding the next Pitch Perfect or Hunger Games. And so I'm wondering how you go about deciding on what roles are right for you. I approach everything from a sense of like character first. Like what's the opportunity to grow as a person, to work with interesting people. Like, how do I break expectations? Not just of the audience of me, but of myself. You know, how do I challenge myself? How do I continue to grow and learn? From the very beginning, you know, I, I, my first day ever auditioning in like real Hollywood was um, right after my showcase from drama school. And I was offered a two-year contract on one of the soaps, a soap opera here in New York. And I had a lot of student loans to pay off and it would have really financially helped me so much. And I remember calling my mom and crying. I was on a, by the way, this, I'm a date myself. I was on a payphone, called my mom and burst into tears. I just knew it was not right for me. And I said, I don't think I can do it, mom. And it's so much money. And I, I have to say, no, I just know it's not right for me. Um, it wasn't going to be the challenge that I was at. You know, I was coming out of drama school. I was play, doing Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen. And I came to New York to do theater, which by the way, I, I never did. Um, <laughs> but that initial decision has really guided everything I've ever done since then. I've always been able to make decisions based on what feels right just in my in my heart. You did mention doing stage work, but it never actually happened. Is that something that you- th- Not yet. Yeah, exactly, not yet. Is that something that you think about? Is there, and also like if that were to happen, like are you leaning more play or more musical? Oh, more play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Um, musicals require like a full immersion experience. Like you, you know, you don't drink, you don't eat dairy, you don't, you know, it's, it's legit. You're doing eight shows a week. And if you have to sing, you can't mess with the instrument at all. And I'm not sure that mentally I'm like that ready to immerse myself in that way. Yeah. That being said, I do love musicals and I would love to be involved with one. Um, But to me, it's like, I want to play Lady M. Mm. That's where my head's at. But my kids need to get a little older so that I can be away from them for that amount of time. You know, some of it is also just being a mom and like, how do you work that into that schedule into your life? Um, Because it's hard. It's difficult, you know, but I, I will do it. I will be driving Miss Daisy when I'm 75, hopefully. Can't wait to get my tickets. Um, <laughs> what about directing a musical? Because, I mean, obviously you've done Pitch Perfect. You have experience doing it on film. I imagine stage is different to an extent, but, you know, you have the tool set right now. Is that something that appeals? Oh, goodness. that That's, a, again, when you talk about art forms and, like, what, <laughs> it, what expertise is required, I do not have that expertise. When I think about what a scary job would be, that is a job that would scare me. Okay, a less hypothetical production that you have on the horizon is this new film, Bottoms. It is a highly anticipated teen sex comedy that your company, Brownstone Productions, is producing, and it's starring so many of our faves, including Rachel Sennett and Ayo Edabiri. 
We don't know a ton about the project, other than the fact that it's set to headline South by Southwest next month. We got this nugget from Rachel on the plot of the film. She said, quote, two girls in a classic American football town who start a fight club under the guise of female empowerment, but it's actually so they can have sex with cheerleaders. That's right. I'm hooked. It sounds like, I'm like, <laughs> sounds just like cocaine bear. It's like, tell me, I'm already in. So is there anything else you can illuminate for us about this film and, and what audiences might be able to expect? I think, I think Rachel pretty much nailed it. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like a new fangled super bad. It's, you know, a month in the life of these um, high school girls who are going to graduate, kind of like Booksmart as well. Um, they're going to graduate and they want to get laid before they go to college because they know when they get to college, they don't want to be like the virgins who don't know what they're doing. And they've had these lifelong crushes and they realize that a way that they can actually like bring these women together in their lives is through this like after school fight club. And and they end up sort of, you know, saving the school and it's all it's a big romp. I mean, again, tone, right? It's all fun, winky. That one, I think you will possibly label camp. Okay. I'm eager. That one might get a little camp for you. I'm excited for that. I think what's so exciting about this film and for a lot of people that are excited about it is the idea of us moving in a direction where queer centered films are not always centered around the queerness of the characters as being a plot point, but rather just who they are. Yeah. And I also like the fact that, I mean, from this title alone, which like Cocaine Barrier, immediately leaning in, um, it just tells you that like this is a, a film that's not going to take itself too seriously. That's right. But also like maybe it will. I mean, who's to say? And there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, Booksmart is another great example of like an incredibly queer film that was not explicitly queer. And I think thus so exciting for queer people that want to see their lives depicted in ways that aren't just centralizing their queerness all the time. It's just sort of the backdrop. It is just who they are. Um, and we, I love the storytellers that were involved were amazing. Emma Seligman, who made Shiva Baby um, with Rachel Sennett. They're all just so young and fresh and the idea feels like it's theirs you know it's like their generations and I, I love that I'm excited to be helping promote like the next generation of like storytellers who are doing exactly what you're saying they're just telling their stories the way they want to which this actually connects to my next question which I've been thinking about something that you said in that recent variety interview about the slow progress of Hollywood when it comes to embracing women over 40 you said progress is slow you can only ask for so much but you'll keep pushing then you added quote just being a little more quiet Quietly revolutionary is maybe what I'm going for. And I actually think this connects back to something you said earlier. And I have to think that part of that is not just in the roles you choose, but also in the projects that you choose to direct, also the projects that you choose to produce. I mean, thinking about Bottoms, for instance. And I feel like that must be a key to all of this is being someone who can provide the opportunities. And I'm wondering how important that is for you, especially with your production company. It's a huge responsibility, I think. How, when I say quietly revolutionary, what I mean is like we have to be influencing the business of Hollywood ever so slowly. Every, you know, we got to keep pushing on like whose stories get told, who tells the stories, who's behind the camera as well as in front of the camera, all of those things. And, you know, there's always more that can be done. I mean, I'm not, I didn't solve this and I'm not solving it. I'm just trying to sort of gently push things in a direction where more, it's more inclusive. That's really what it comes mm. down to. 
I was recently rewatching Sex and the City, as I am wont to do, and you popped up. You appear in season three, episode two, Politically Erect, um, which famously is one of the only episodes in which a Carrie love interest, besides one of the main ones, appears in more than one episode. Um, Your character, Catherine, helps inspire Charlotte to host a used boyfriend party. Actually, we met the most unusual way. One of my girlfriends threw a party where all the women were asked to bring a man they weren't interested in. Somebody brought Bob. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history. I love that. One woman's trash is another woman's treasure. I mean, we've had several former Sex and the City guest stars like Jennifer Coolidge on this show, and it's always a question that I ask. Uh, Murray Bartlett was on recently. We talked about his season four appearance. (laughs) What do you remember about shooting Sex and the City? And I have to say, you shot, you know, Season three, episode two is like right when the show is starting to really take off into the zeitgeist. Um, You know, I think by season three, season four is when it was, you know, all the way there. So, yeah. What was that experience like? Well, you know, I was living in New York at the time and there were only like four shows that you could be on in New York. So if you were on Law and Order and you were on, you know, uh, I think Third Watch was here at the time. (laughs) And I think maybe Sex and City was like the only other like great job that everybody wanted. And they, every week they had a, a, they had some version of guest stars. So I remember just feeling like, oh man, I, if I get this, I'm making it. Like, this is how you make it, right? So, so excited to be there. I remember my, my main memory is I was backstage in my dressing room in a hallway and I could hear all of the ladies chatting. Like I could hear like Kristen Davis and Sarah Jessica. And, and then I met Sarah Jessica, she's so nice. Oh, come with Sarah Jessica, you know, the whole thing. Everyone was so nice. And they were all, they all were kind of like chatting in the hallway and it was very collegial. I don't, I think they were, it was so successful, but I think even they were like, can you believe it? That we get to like <laughs> put on these fabulous clothes and just like, you know, we work 20 minutes from our homes and, it was like the actor's job, like is what every actor dreams of doing, like something culturally amazing that's close to home, that pays well, like, you know what I mean? Like it is, it was totally. a job to have. And uh, that's what I remember feeling on that set was just like, wow, these women have made it. It's, this is freaking awesome. And then I remember going to set and I, Michael, Michael Patrick King, I believe if he didn't direct that episode, he was on set. He was, he's the, the, the executive producer of the show and writer. And, um, he was on set that day. And I think I improved a couple things cause he like encouraged me. And it was one of the first times I really was encouraged to improv, which has become sort of a trademark of my work going, you know, since then. But, and then I got to meet John. I didn't know about the John Slattery. This it's the episode where he pees on her in the shower, right? Yes. Yeah, so that was the other storyline that was going on. (laughs) And um, I didn't know about that storyline. And then I saw John Slattery not long after the episode aired and he was like, hey, you were on that episode. And I was like, hey, you were on that. Like, you know, he really got to do some fun shit on that episode. Well, he shows up in the premiere and then that's his second episode. And it's funny because, you know, looking back on it now, you, you watch so many of these episodes play out and you're like, you know, why was this the way it was? And it's like, all he, you know, he just wanted to pee on her. She could have, I mean, she did. She said no. Yeah. And they seem to have so much else going for them. He was one of the more favorable gentlemen that came into her life, but that was just, you know, a bridge too far. She couldn't do it. Deal breaker. Like what's the deal breakers, right? Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much. I want to beyond encourage people to check out this movie. This is the kind of movie you're going to want to see. You're going to want to bring friends. You're going to want to see again. 
you're going to want to talk about it. That's the hardest thing for me right now is it's like, this is the thing about going to see these advanced screenings is you just want to go and like, this is the kind of movie to discuss. Um, But what's fun, and I'm sure you've had this all throughout the process, is the second you approach someone that hasn't heard about it and you start to talk about it, you immediately just get so many follow-up questions by the premise alone. <laughs> yeah, the one of the ones I get is, is that real? That didn't, that, like, they didn't really let you make that movie. I'm like, no, they did. It's it's real. Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah, it's real. It's happening. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I, I'm a fan and and I, I'm so impressed. And thank you, for, thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you. Okay, bye. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan! Shut up, Evan. Shut Up, Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support, and thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.